let's cultivate our motivation. And again, really thinking about how short this life is, how quickly it goes by. And when we reach its end, we can't rewind it and do things differently. And so while we have all the conditions necessary to practice, to progress along the path, to learn the teachings, and it's really important that we take advantage of this opportunity. Because if next lifetime we're born in the lower realms, then can't even benefit ourselves, let alone benefit anybody else. It's so difficult to get an upper rebirth. So even though we take it for granted, we really need to think more clearly and see what a precious opportunity this is. And to see how being attached to the happiness of only this life by pursuing I want what I want when I want it with a very self-centered mind, pursuing sense pleasures, how that is going to be a big impediment for our spiritual practice. Because how can we cultivate deep concentration and wisdom when we're still hankering for sense pleasure and reputation and all these kinds of things. So it's important to generate our renunciation and put our energy in the direction that we want to go in, even if it takes a long time to attain enlightenment to go in that direction with steadfastness and enthusiasm. So cultivate that aspiration for full enlightenment and know that we're going to listen to teachings on monastic life so that we can put them into practice and progress on that path. So the first, you know, one of the big things that defines uh, a layperson or a sangha from a layperson is uh, how they relate to sexuality, how they relate to romantic relationships. So Venerable Jambasajan was saying this, uh, this morning that renunciation, you know, and the, the uh, term for ordination, rabjo, it's going forth. You're leaving the home life and going into homeless life. And one, is the, one of the key elements of the home life, it is family. That's what home life is about, isn't it? It's about having a home, having a family. What is having a family based on? How do you have a family? Sex. You aren't going to procreate without it. Okay. So the family life is very much based on sexual relationships. And it is um, based on emotional uh, relationships as well, you know. So it's uh, forming special relationships with certain sentient beings, 
um, making commitments to them, but of course nowadays these commitments mean uh, of varying degrees. People don't take, you know, they say forever, but it's always negotiable. But, the, you know, if starting a family, having a home life is based on this intimacy, emotional intimacy, sexual intimacy with another person. Okay. As soon as you have, unless you're gay, with social, you know, a, a sexual intimacy, uh, kids are going to come. Okay. And, uh, and then some gay couples also choose to have kids. So you have a partner and then you have kids. As soon as you have a partner and kids, you've got to feed them. Right? How are you going to feed the partner that you're attached to, the kids that you're attached to? You have to get a job. Okay? As soon as you get a job, it isn't just a question of getting a job to support your family. You also need to get certain things in order to be able to have the job. You need a car to be able to get to the job. Europe is much better about public transport. U.S. is very bad. So you usually need to get a car so you can get to your job. Okay? So you need more money to get the car to go to the job to earn the money to support your spouse and kids. It's not only a car you need to get. You need to get certain clothes. Right? You can't go like this to your work. Yeah. You have to get certain clothes that correspond with somebody that has that kind of job. And your car has to correspond to somebody who gets that kind of job. Now, one of my friends in Seattle was a doctor and he had an old car and that was just not okay with his colleagues. Yeah. You need to have a new car, an expensive car, if you're a doc. Okay? So you need certain clothes. Then you need to live in certain neighborhoods. Right? You need to live in a neighborhood that the kind of person who has the job you have lives in. And you need to live in the kind of neighborhood that is going to be safe for your children. Because you don't want your kids growing up just any old place. So uh, it isn't like you have kids and continue living just the way you used to live. It, you know, you can always tell the people who have never had kids when they're expecting their first child. They think everything's going to just kind of keep going along except you just take the baby with you. <laughs> Not quite like that. Okay. So then as your kids are growing up, yeah, your kids want to have the same thing as their friends have. It's very difficult to bring up your child and say, well, we're not going to have a TV and we're not going to have Nintendo games and we're not going to wear Nike shoes and we're not going to have toy guns and all these kinds of things. Um, you may feel that way in your family values, but it becomes very difficult when you're living in a community uh, where all the other kids have those things 
and your kids are going to their houses and seeing those things and playing with them. Okay. So we have a mom back here. You're nodding your head. Is this true? Very, very true. <laughs> You're a mom too? True or not? Okay. So you go in. You're a mom? True? Okay. Uh, anybody else here, parent? Your parent? True? Okay. So you go in with all this idealism about how your family is going to be different and your kids are not going to grow up with, you know, guns and, and all this, you know, the TV and all the whole thing. And it becomes extremely difficult, even from the time your children are very, very little, you know. Because you send your kid, as soon as your kid goes out to uh, kindergarten, not even kindergarten, to preschool, they're exposed to all this stuff. And how kids are sexualized very early now, and, you know, you're faced with this as a parent. Yeah. And then you have to, like I said, you have to live in the community. Your kids want these things. So, you know, now you, you not only have to work to pay for the car and the clothes and the house and just to put food on the table for your spouse and kids. But your kids also want all the special things that the other kids have. And this gets very expensive in America. Yeah. I remember in the years of the dinosaurs when I was little, we used to go out and play in the street. We played in the dirt with sticks. You know, kids nowadays are not content to play in the dirt and skip and with sticks because their parents from the very beginning give them so many toys. So you need to, you know, you want your kid to this whole Einstein thing. So, uh, you know, you have to give them colored things and pieces of things that fit together, you know, to make shapes and you give it, you know, so they can't just play with sticks and dirt like we did. Okay. We played in the orange. Really? We did. Down the creek. Yeah. We played in the orange grove. Yeah. So, in the weeds? Woods. Woods. Yeah. So, you know, uh, so it it was fine. Nowadays, it's very difficult. Also, because parents are very worried about somebody who's going to kidnap their child. You know? And so then you have to drive your kid to school and pick them up. They, your kid cannot go on the bus like we went on. Yeah. Yeah. Or ride your bike or go on the bus. But now you have to take your kids specially to school and pick them up. Okay. And, uh, and then you have to get them all these things and you have to send them to summer camp. And they have to have after school lessons. Again, they can't just play in the dirt with sticks in the woods or the, by the creek or the orange trees. You know, you have to take them to swimming lessons. You have to take them to golf lessons. You have to take them to football lessons. And they don't just go and play on a team. The parents now have to pay for their kids to play on a team. And I did. We, you know, we just went. Now the parents have to pay. So you have to earn more money to do that. And your kid has to have a uniform. 
They can't just play in their jeans like we did. They have to have a uniform. And your kid, and also you, need special clothes uh, when you go to the uh, when you exercise. So if you ride your bike with your child, you need a helmet. You need special clothes to ride your, your bike in. You cannot ride your bike in just your jeans. You have to have special bike riding clothes. Okay. And then when you go for yoga, you have to have yoga clothes and a mat for yoga. How dare you turn up? What are the neighbors going to think if you turn up in your whatever at yoga if you don't have the right clothes? And if you want your kids to learn yoga, then they have to wear the right clothes. Okay. And then if they learn Kung Fu, then, you know, or Tai Chi, they have to get clothes for that. They have to get uniforms for their teams. If they learn music lessons, you have to get them an instrument. Okay. Then you also yourself, you know, not only are you taking care of your child in this way, but you have all of your hobbies. You know, you want to grow bonsai trees. <laughs> you want to go bowling. You know, people have all different kinds of hobbies. You want to do painting. That you, you know, you have this creative thing that you never thought you would ever have. You need painting. You need money to do your hobbies. And, of course, you need special clothes. And you need to present yourself in a special way to go to those places. And, of course, your spouse needs the same thing. Okay? So, I had one friend, her spouse, her, his passion was Civil War history. Yeah. So, you don't know who you're going to marry and fall in love with. <laughs> you know? And they may have this passion for, you know, kind of the Napoleonic era. And they want to buy things for Napoleonic heirs. And you did, you were in a Japanese drum group. <laughs> you know? I mean, people have all sorts of different interests, right? And drums only cost $4,000. <laughs> oh, only $4,000. How many drums do you need? You need a few drums. And then you have your uniform, right? Right? Okay. And then you have to advertise your drum group. And, you know. Okay. So, so you need all these things. A home life. You need many, many things for. Don't you? Yeah. And then you have to entertain your friends. And so you say, oh, I'm not going to have drugs and alcohol. But what happens if your friends like drugs and alcohol? What happens if your family likes drug and, drugs and alcohol? You know, you invite everybody over for Saturday night dinner, and they want you to serve alcohol. But you have this precept. What are you going to do? Because your family is going to tell you how weird you are. And then, of course, you need the money to buy the, the alcohol. You need the money to buy the dope. You know, whatever it is. And so you get very, very deeply embedded in the home life. Yeah. And it all comes from sexual attachment. Because that's how the family starts. Okay. Unless there's a bunch of Virgin Marys out here. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. 
So you have the sexual attachment, you have the emotional attachment, and then this floods, it bleeds into every single other aspect of your life. And you want to have kids, but you want to have them at a certain time. They don't always come when you want them to happen. Okay, they often come when it's not quite convenient yet. Or you want to have them, and they don't come. And then you have to go for fertility things, and that costs a ton of money. Okay? You're not content to adopt, to give another child a home. You've got to have your own. There's this need to, you know, my genes in the pool. It's not just my genes. It's me. You know, it's recreating me. Everything I am not, this child is going to be. You know, everything I didn't have, this child is going to have. I have all this stuff about they're their own person, they'll make their own decisions, blah, blah. We are recreating what we want it to be. Okay? So, there's a lot of stickiness in all of this, don't you think? A lot of stickiness. And, of course, you know, when you have your child, you think your child is the one and only best perfect child in the world. And, of course, when they're babies, they seem like that. You know, you can put up with them crying in the middle of the night because they'll grow out of it. Yeah. But, you know, they all grow into teenagers. (laughs) And then there you are with a teenager who is a replica of yourself when you were a teenager. How did you treat your parents when you were a teenager? Okay. My mother used to say, just you wait. (laughs) Wait until you have kids and then you'll know what I went through. So I didn't. (laughs) But... If you get involved in the home life, you know, kids come and then, you know, they're growing up. It's quite interesting. We've noticed at the the Abbey, kind of our generation, we all got out of the house as soon as we possibly could. Nowadays, kids don't get out of the house as soon as they possibly can. Yeah, they're there for quite a long time and they continuously ask you for money and you have your own old parents you know because you're an adult now and you're taking care of your parents who are getting up there so you have to give some, some money to your parents and meanwhile your child you know who you put through school blah 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 is now also asking you for money Sometimes they don't even move out until they're 40, and you're lucky then that they're out. It's, no, it's really quite changed from when I was young. Yeah? Because we were all out of the house early. Yeah? Anybody still my, my age living with their parents after age 20? You're not my age. <laughs> yeah, and I'm talking about my age, my generation. Anybody living with their parents after age 20? No, no, but I did live with my mother until I was past 
Okay. But, you know, most of us, boy, we were out of there. But uh, not now. Not now. Yeah. So you have your kid, and it's not just 18 years. It could be 40 years. <laughs> you know? Uh, hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Here's my laundry. Can you give me some money? <laughs> hmm? And that's what it's like. Okay? So, um, you know, the home life, it, it can bring a certain amount of security, but it has a whole lot of problems. And the security that you think you're getting from the home life, you never really get. You never really get. Um, you think you're going to have financial security? Do you know anybody who has financial security? Who feels financially secure? No. And you're not just caring about yourself because now you have a spouse and you have kids. <clears throat> Remember, and they all need certain things. And you have, you have that responsibility. Um, there's all these other things that, that have, have come from it. You know, and you can't walk out of it easily. Okay. When people first fall in love and they get and everything's perfect, this person is going to fulfill all of my needs. Because okay. we're so enamored with, you know, movies and music and everything, and it's all about sex. You know, I love you, I can't live without you, you know. But it's always sung to somebody who that person finds sexually attractive. Yeah. If you think of the person, you know, that you're sure you love and has nothing to do with sex, imagine that person when they're 80 years old. Would you still marry them? Now, if they look like they're going to look when they're 70 or 80. Yeah. I had a, a friend who, um, he had looked up an old girlfriend after some years, you know, kind of a high school sweetheart or something, and she welcomed him, and he went to see her, and she opened, and he was all excited, oh, a high school sweetheart. Open the door, and she's 250 pounds, you know. And he was like, oh, she doesn't look like she did when she was 18. Yeah. Even my dad did this. After my mom died, he looked up the years today and saw her. And he said, oh, she's an old lady. <laughs> he was so surprised. He expected her to look the same. You know, so uh, you know you expect you're going to have all this security and all this happiness, and the person you're married to ages and gets older and uglier. Right? Don't we get older and uglier? Anybody get more beautiful? Our society idolizes youth. Nobody's becoming younger. Everybody's getting older and young and uglier. Yet we idolize youth. Yeah? And you think your partner's really fantastic now, but they ain't going to stay that way. Yeah? 
you just think about it. You know, this person you find so good looking now. Think of what they're going to look like in 40 years. And then, the, you know, you think the emotional stability. You know, this person fulfills my emotional needs. And we have this thing now where we put all the eggs in one basket. You know, I think in previous times people lived with extended families, so you had a lot of different people. So everybody had different interests and different topics that they connected about. Yeah, so you had many different people in your life that you were close to that met your needs. But now, with this emphasis on love and, and, you know, like this, it's like this person is going to be everything for me. Because I'm singing, I can't live without you. You know, you're everything for me. Now, somebody came up to you and said, I expect you to meet all my needs. (laughs) Yeah, I expect you to meet all my needs. What would you say? (laughs) Even if you thought this person was wonderful, what would you say? (laughs) Can you meet all of somebody else's needs? Can you? No? Why do we expect somebody else to meet all of our needs? And yet that's the expectation in romantic love. That this person is going to meet all my needs, not only now, but forever. But that's not really conscious. It's not conscious. And that's why I'm talking about it and making it conscious. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not conscious, and we get into that whole thing, having that expectation. And then, of course, the other person can't fulfill all of our needs. It's impossible. And then we get upset. And we feel like they've betrayed our trust. And we've given them so much love. And they haven't repaid it. And they're so insensitive. And, you know, we promised each other everything when we got married. And now this person isn't fulfilling their part of the deal. And I've just given and given and loved and loved You know, without any demands. (laughs) But this person, you know, he wants to sit and play football. Sit and watch football. He thinks football is more interesting than me. Yeah. And then you feel, you know, what if I got myself into it and he's betrayed my trust and then and then. Yeah. So... You know, we think that we're going to get all these things. And it looks like that from the very beginning. Yeah. Everybody in here fall in love at one time or another? You know? And it looks great at the beginning. And why aren't we still with that person? <laughs> yeah, reality sets in. Okay? And uh, and then it becomes quite difficult. And you then you have to really adjust. Yeah, You have to give up your own trip. And you have to sacrifice some of your values. Sometimes you have to sacrifice your wants, sacrifice your needs. You know? But here you thought this was going to make you everlastingly happy. 
or the person dies when they're young or they get in an accident or they come down with a really serious illness and all this great sex you thought you were going to have they can't do anymore okay so all all these things happen you know uh and this is what home life is. This is what household life is. Yeah. And you can't just walk out on it, especially after you have kids. Yeah. You can't just say, tell, buy. Okay. Even if you divorce, you have financial commitments. You have emotional commitments. Yeah. So having a child isn't just, oh, I have this kid. Isn't it cute? They look like me. And as soon as they start acting like a brat, you leave them with your spouse. He looks like his father. Huh? He looks like his father. Okay. He used to look like me, but now that he's acting terrible, he looks like you. (laughs) So you take care of him. Okay. But this is what happens in families, isn't it? Anybody here, we all came from families. We all have two parents. Yeah. When you look at your parents' relationship, is your parents' relationship something that was wonderful? Something that brought them incredible fulfillment and joy? Before they had kids. Huh? Before they had kids. Before they had kids? Well, you weren't even around to see what it was like before they had you. (laughs) Yeah. But if we just even look at our parents' relationship, or look at anybody you know, who do you know who has a wonderful family life with no complaints? Do you know anybody? Yeah, who's completely satisfied with their family. Yeah. Set aside the kids. You know anybody who's completely satisfied with their spouse? Yes, that's part of the problem. We're not completely satisfied with ourselves. We don't feel like we're whole people, so we're looking for other people to fill us up. Okay, and they can't do that just as we can't fill them up. Okay, so when it talks about going from home life into the homeless life, this is what you're leaving behind. So after this talk, you might say, oh, great. But the thing is, if we look, we have so much conditioning inside of us that you're supposed to grow up and find a partner and have a family. And this is going to bring you happiness. The way you grew up in your family was this kind of, sometimes it's the outward message, sometimes it's the subtle subtext. But was this how you grew up with, this is what happiness is? Yeah. You grow up, you meet somebody, you have a family, you have your career. That's going to bring you happiness and contentment. It's the kind of model that's set forth in almost every culture. It's the rare family that doesn't put that out. Yeah. So we have all this conditioning And yet, we're trying to live a life where we're celibate. And celibate, you know, there's there's 
sexual celibacy, so dealing with your sexual energy, which is one part. And then the other part is the emotional needs that we have. And I talked a little bit about that yesterday. And learning to create friendships within the Sangha that fulfill your emotional needs, but are free of this sticky, gooey expectation kind of stuff. Yeah. And we don't have any training in how to do that. Our family doesn't teach us how to do that. They teach us how to have attachment. Because that's what they have. <laughs> yeah. So we're entering, when you leave the family life, uh, the home life, and go into the home life, you know, you're, you're entering into territory that your upbringing hasn't raised you for. Mm-hmm. So it's hard and it's challenging. And we have all this old conditioning. And so sometimes you think, oh, I feel so lonely. Nobody in this community understands me. Oh, there's some visitor who's really, they're very nice. They're so nice to talk to. They feel so good around them. They laugh. They joke. They seem to really respect me and appreciate me. Yeah. Oh, I feel kind of attracted to them. Oh, but it's it's not lust. It's it's not. <laughs> it's not that we're just good friends. That's all. There's 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 no attachment. Oh, but they're so nice to be with. Oh, and I can talk with the, about them. With the, talk with them about the Dharma. And we work together, and it's fun. So much nicer than these other people at the community. (laughs) (laughs) Who just kind of boss me around and criticize me all this time. And it's not that that person's good looking. I'm not attracted in that way. Oh no, I'm, I'm not. No, I don't have any sexual desire towards <laughs> And then, you know, slowly, slowly, you find yourself walking down the hill with them, hand in hand, to a better future. I've seen it happen many times. I'm not making this up. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's really a challenge to learn to deal with our conditioning and to, with our emotional needs and with our sexual energy. Okay. And the thing is that, uh, you know, when you're ordained, if, if you break that, you know, there's the root vows, and one of them is, is having sexual intercourse, the depth of a, uh, a piece of hair, not the long hair, this way, <laughs> this way. Okay? So, that, you know, that kind of sexual relationship, you're done, you've perijikad, you are out of the song that you cannot ordain this life. And you've created a ton of negative karma to boot. Okay? So it's quite serious. Quite serious. 
You're finished. There is no second chance. Yeah? You have sexual relationships. Finished. Kaput. You have to wait for next life. Okay? So it's very, very serious. And then there's other ones that you can get involved in that um, are serious, but you're not defeated. The parajika is defeat, but you're suspended for a while, which means you have to sit at the end of the sangha line, you have to serve the sangha, you have to uh, report all the time where you are to somebody, and you have to do some kind of penance and purification. Yeah. So it's quite serious, all these things. It's not just, you know, casual. So it's something to be very, very careful about. Um, Okay, so it, it really entails working with all of this and bringing it all up to a conscious level. You know, all these things like you were saying, it's, it's not conscious. That's the, the thing, and anything we're not conscious of is going to drag us around, you know, like a donkey with a ring in its nose. And so, to keep your precepts, you have to bring up all, you know, well, a lot of these things come up by themselves, especially if you're doing purification practices. But you have to be willing to, to look at all of these things and work them out and look very clearly uh, with your wisdom eye at them, at all the attachments, at all the rationalizations, at all the yes buts, at all the if onlys. Okay? And you can't leave any of those things unturned. Because it's going to be a danger for your relations, for your ordination, if if you do. So it's uh, it's it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. Also t- tied to the you know the home life, which is based on sex, is this whole notion of success. Because if you have a spouse and kids, you have to be successful. Yeah. When your kids say, this is my mom, this is my dad, you want them to point to somebody who looks good in their friend's eyes and in their friend's parents' eyes. Okay? So you have to think of what it means to be a success. And again, what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, what kind of position you have. You know, you have to advance up the ladder as you're working. You can't just stay in a lower position. And as you advance up the ladder, you know, because you need more and more money, because money is the indication of success, and status in your job is the indication of success, as you progress up the ladder in your workplace, you get the privilege of working longer hours. And you get the privilege of having more stress. But you can't not do it because your whole family is expecting you to be a certain way and look a certain way. You know? And if you don't come through for them, they're going to be hurt. They might divorce you. You don't know. Okay. So everything is so tangled up. Very, very tangled up. Very sticky. Very difficult to pull out of. And the whole process, of course, of falling in love and finding somebody is 
you have your checklist of what you want them to be. Hmm? Okay, this It's not so good on this one. Use this guy aside. Let's find another one. And you have your little checklist of you know what they want to, what you want them to have. And uh, they have the same checklist. I mean, they have their checklist. Okay. And uh, and of course you're attracted if you find somebody that meet that you meets most of your your list, then you really want them to like you. So then you have to think of how can I get this person to like me? Because I really like them. They're fantastic. And none of this is conscious. It's exactly what you said. It's not conscious. But it's like, I'm so attracted to that person. I wonder what I have to be. What what is going to make me attractive to them? So our mind does this thing of what do I think they think I should be? Okay? Because I've got to please this person. I'm attracted to them. Yeah, they're kind of showing some interest. But I've got to please them. And to please them, I have to figure out what it is they want. And then I have to become that. It doesn't matter whether I want to become that or not. To hang on to this person and have this relationship and I want them to be near, I have to become that. And so then we live a life of what we think other people think we should be. And what I'm noticing is, again, when I was a child back with the dinosaurs, my parents were parents. They weren't trying to have a popularity contest with us kids. They didn't care if we liked them or not liked them. You know, they, they were the parents. And we knew they loved us. But they disciplined us when we needed discipline. And we couldn't play mom and dad against each other to get what we want. And they were the ones running the family. What I see now with my generation as parents is they want their kids to like them. Not just love them as parents, but they want their kids to like them. And so I see parents trying to please their children. There's Johnny, who's three years old. Johnny, do you want apple juice or orange juice? Johnny doesn't have any clue, but you want to please him and give him exactly what he wants. And so as soon as he learns the difference between apple and orange juice, whenever he shrieks for one, you're going to get him that. You know? And I see parents kind of becoming their, their children's servants so that their children will like them. My parents didn't do that. Oh, no. Anybody in my generation, did your parents do that? My parents didn't. Yeah? 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 But this is what I see in my generation being parents. You know, I want to give my kid absolutely everything. So there you are as a kid, as a parent. And you're not only trying to please your spouse, you're trying to be what you think your kid thinks you should be. Because so-and-so's mother lets them do this and so and so's father is like this and so and so this and that and you know 
and I don't like you. <laughs> and then as a parent, you're completely crushed. Because you know? not just the relationship isn't just based on love, but you want your kids to like you. Okay? So it gets very complicated, and then you wind up, you know, trying to become, like I said, who you think other people think you should be. Is that honest? Is that sincere? Is that going to bring you fulfillment? Yeah? Is that going to bring you fulfillment? But it happens on an unconscious level. And then after you're, you know, right smack in the middle of it, and you feel like you're not being a genuine person, but now you have your, you know... 1.9 1.9 children <laughs> and you know it's hard to you know what are you going to do what are you going to do okay so this is, this is you know all something to really think about and to know that you have to work with this conditioning you know when you ordain and you need to think about it very clearly before you ordain too okay so that's, that's one element one element of being a monastic. Another thing that's very important, and Jumpa Sajan, Venerable Jumpa Sajan, uh, touched on it at lunch, is uh, following your teacher's instructions, you know, and uh, following the Sangha's instructions. There's, uh, it's very often mes- mentioned in the Vinaya about how the Sangha, how we support each other. And we support each other by giving each other advice. And so if we see somebody who's going down the wrong path, if we see somebody who's having trouble, we go and talk to that person. And sometimes we may go talk to them and, you know, how are you and what's going on? Are you having some trouble? But sometimes you have to talk to them and say, you know, you're behaving in a way that's really dangerous to your precepts. Or you're behaving in a way that is not appropriate for, you know, um, earning the faith of the lay people who support the Sangha. And so we have to be open to that when our Dharma brothers and sisters say things like that. How many of you like other people giving you advice? (laughs) I like the advice when they tell me what I want to hear. But I don't like the rest of the advice. You know? And so if you're living in a Sangha community, you know, we admonish each other. We advise each other. We support each other. And we all have to be open to receiving this kind of advice and support and to know to learn how to give it and to give it in a skillful way. And this is our duty and responsibility to each other. Yeah. If we see somebody who's doing something that's actually not becoming for a Sangha and they're part of our community, we have a duty to, to go and talk to them and to help them and to reach out to them. But, you know, when we're starting to go down the wrong path, 
We often don't realize it. We have lots of reasons why we're doing what we're doing. And usually somebody comes and tells us something and we get very angry with them. Even though they're saying something that is for our own benefit. Yeah. So I remember one, one time uh, saying something. There was one nun who was, you know, going to go out with a layman. You know, oh, they were just going to go, I don't know, walking in the woods or go on a picnic or something. And I said something to her. Whoa! You know, this was 20 years ago. But, you know, whoa, did not want to hear about that. Oh, what are you saying? There's no attachment this time. I can go on this picnic with this guy. But they're going alone, you know. And they've been talking to each other a lot recently. You know, so it's, um, you know, this thing of reaching out and protecting each other and learning to listen to other people's suggestions and advice. It doesn't mean that the advice that people give you is always right. Sometimes they do misunderstand the situation or whatever, and you explain it to them, and it's fine, and it gets cleared up. But people, you know, they do give you feedback. And if you're living in the community and you're being quite disagreeable day after day and obstinate day after day, people are going to let you know. (laughs) Yeah? And so we have to learn to be open to these kinds of things. And then also when we see if somebody else is being stubborn, if they're being obstinate and or whatever. We need to learn how to be skillful and yet express our concern about their behavior to them. Yeah. And sometimes risk their getting upset with us. Or risk our saying something wrong. Okay? Or saying something that they misunderstand. So that's why I always you know, I, I told you at the beginning in, in the uh, in the sutras, whenever somebody's done something wrong, when the Buddha calls them, he, he always starts out, "Is it true you did this and this?" You know, first get your facts right. Yeah. Then why did you do this and this? And you have to learn to say, "Why did you do this and this?" And not, why did you do this and this? You see the difference? So you have to learn how to say it, where it's an open question and you're not judging the person. And you have to learn when people say, why did you do this and this, to not go back to your old conditioning that every time somebody said those words, even though they're saying, why did you do this and this, you're hearing, why did you do this and this? Because we have old patterns of hearing everything as criticism. Yeah? So we have to learn to work with that. Yeah? And learn, learn to, you know, uh, to listen, learn to speak. It's, it's a lot of learning. It's quite beautiful as it happens, you know, as it continues. And uh, to really see people learn this. And we also have to learn to uh, point out other people's good qualities 
and to rejoice at other people's success. If in a, you're living in a community, and of course we carry our jealousy in with us into the community, if we start getting jealous of other people, yeah, it doesn't work. Oh, teacher pays more attention to so-and-so. They don't pay any attention to me. Yeah. Oh, the teacher's more lenient with so-and-so. They're not lenient with me. So-and-so gets to go to this, and I don't get to go. So-and-so, when they can't finish their work, it's okay. But I don't, you know, I don't get cut that slack. Everybody's always on my case. Yeah. And, and just, it's amazing. I wish we had tapes of what we said when we were kids. Yeah? Because these patterns are deep, you know? Sibling rivalry. I actually had a friend say that to me one time. I was uh, going to visit one of my teachers, and his translator was an old Dharma friend of mine. But, of course, she was much closer to my teacher because she lived there all the time, and, you know, I lived somewhere else. And he, he was watching the interaction when I went to see my teacher and kind of re- request for some teachings or to talk with him and everything. And he said, oh, there's a little bit of sibling rivalry between the two of you. wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know? So then we have to look at, you know, our jealousy of other, of other Sangha members. And our pattern of jealousy and our pattern of it isn't fair. You know, that whole thing. I want equal right. So, you know, there's all of this kind of stuff that, that it involves really looking at. Also important in, in our Sangha life is uh, to live in a community. If you're leaving the home life, it's not just living without kids and a spouse. It's living in community. When you live on your own, it's very difficult to keep your precepts. And it's, you know, because you have so many old habits, you know. And especially if you're working at a job. You've, you've done it. Yeah. And you're nodding your head. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. It's hard. It's very hard. And what you've done is quite admirable. You know. But it's very hard because you go to work and then you come home and you're tired and you want to relax so you want to watch TV or whatever. So you're basically, and then, you know, you have your social life because you're living on your own. Your friends are mostly lay people. Okay. So you have lay friends. They want to do what lay people do. Okay, they want to go out and have a drink. They want to go out and eat in the evening. You're trying to keep your precept not to eat, but they're, they want to go out and eat. They want to go to the movies. You know, you don't, you have a, a precept not to, to have, in, you know, watch entertainment, but they're pressuring you to go to the movies. There's no other sangha around who understands what you're doing. You feel completely like, wow, what am I doing here? You know, nobody understands what I'm doing. You know, I feel like this, you know, white crow. (laughs) Yeah, crows are black, we're white. You know, I I just don't fit in. And and you're really kind of stuck in the middle. So it's, it's quite hard. And then, of course, you earn a paycheck. As soon as you have your own money, then, well, 
I'm going to go spend my money the way I want to spend it. It's my money after all. Nobody's going to tell me how to spend my money. And we go out and we buy this and we buy that and I need this and I need that and the other thing. Yeah? When you're living in a community, you, you, you can't do that. Yeah? It's been helpful to all of you to not be able to go out and buy what you want. Yeah? So, um, you know, but when you live on your own, you don't have that support to do that. You're, you, you know? So it's hard. And of course, your friends are laying there all wanting you to, you know, oh, I got these really new sandals, you know. Why don't you get, go come and get these sandals? They're really good. They're on sale so-and-so place, you know. Yeah. Because your lay friends don't understand what you're trying to do as a monastic. How can they, you know? How can they? So, um, you know, the Buddha set up for us to live in communities for a reason. You know, it's, it's for a purpose. Okay. Um, then the whole thing, I've talked already a little bit about um, living by donations, making our life a life of generosity, where we don't charge people, where we give, and where gives you a lot of freedom because, you know, you can go and teach wherever you want without having to worry who's going to give you a lot of dana and who's not. Yeah, because you've just made that intention at the beginning that you're living, you're going to live your life as a generosity. And then, of course, some people appreciate that and they give to you. And some people don't have the means and they don't do it. And some people don't even, it doesn't even enter their mind. Yeah. And whatever it is, whatever they give you, however they treat you, you accept it. Yeah. And in the West, they often don't, don't have a clue. Don't have, yeah, I mean, and how can they? It's not a Buddhist culture. Okay. So there's those kinds of things to get used to. Um, then, of course, the, the whole thing about entertainment and choosing how we spend time and how often, you know, when we feel a little bit out of sorts, we feel bored, we feel unappreciated, you know, what do we do? We, we want to watch a movie. Yeah? Kind of watch a movie and go into somebody else's reality for a while or listen to music or head for the refrigerator. Or, you know? Go to the shopping mall. You know, what do people do when they feel lonely, when they feel kind of discontent and bored? You go to the shopping mall. Okay? So, but as a monastic, you can't do it. So you're dealing with all this conditioning of, oh, and again, a lot of this isn't even conscious. So often we're not even aware of what we're feeling when we're feeling it. But you're feeling kind of bored. You're not aware that you're feeling bored. All you know is like, I want to go down that hill and do something else. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> I'm tired of being up here. Why should I be up here all the time? Variety is the spice of life. You know? And so you know, there's no awareness of I'm feeling bored. You know, so you have to learn to cultivate that awareness. Well, what does boredom feel like? Or what, you know, or you, or you, you, you know, you feel hurt because everybody else is ignoring you. And, and so you say they don't appreciate me. Yeah. 
So you're feeling kind of hurt, you're feeling lonely, but there's no internal awareness that I'm feeling hurt and lonely. There's just, gee, I want to be with other people and have some fun. Yeah, this place is so boring. Can't you, don't you play frisbee here? <laughs> yeah, you want some exercise and they tell you to go build something. <laughs> or they tell you to go, you know, put something in the in yama, you know, the, the chipper. You want some exercise? Good. Go out to the forest and chip some wood. Go slip some wood. Get your exercise that way. So, you know, there's all these things. And it's a process of slowly, you know, becoming conscious of what we're feeling when we're feeling it and learning to work with all these things. And so the precepts give you this kind of boundary within which you operate and they make you so much more aware. But if, if if you don't have the right attitude about the precepts, thinking that they're going to make me aware of what I'm feeling and aware of my bad habits, then instead you get very antagonistic. These precepts are so strict. Why do I have to keep all these things anyway? You know, they're just like, why did Buddha do this? It doesn't make any sense, you know. And so you run into a problem and you think your precepts are the cause of your misery. You forget that your mind is the cause of your misery. Again. And so then you're you're busy thinking, you know, precepts are the cause of my misery. Oh, I want to go down the hill, go work out at the gym, go on a long hike, go do this and that, go to the movies. Everybody says that movie is so good. And, you know, just have some friends, sit and hang out with my friends. For God's sakes, what's wrong with that? You know, have a drink and relax, smoke some dope. Just let me relax all this stuff. It's like, you know, the schedule and driving me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Who said that? Our senior nanny. <laughs> you know? And I want to go to India. Yeah, right. I want to go to India. Anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. Anywhere. Of course, you get to India, and then there's the mosquitoes that give you dengue that bite in the daytime, and then the mosquitoes that give you malaria that bite at night. And then it's like, I want to go back to America where it's clean. I'm tired of smelling pee in the street. I'm tired of smelling, seeing dead bodies. You know, I want some good food. <laughs> yeah? So, you know, the, the dissatisfied mind. Yeah? And it just comes everywhere with us, this dissatisfied mind. So you have to sit there and work with a dissatisfied mind. You know, and it's like, well, should I run down the hill today or should I run down the hill tomorrow? And if I run down the hill, it's a long way from the bottom of the hill to Newport. (laughs) How am I going to get to Newport? (laughs) You know, I've got to get that shuttle. How am I going to get there? You know? So, um, 
it's about eight miles. Yeah. But you usually want to leave in the middle of the retreat when it's full of snow. <laughs> yeah. Or in the middle of summer when it's like 90 degrees. <laughs> so, um, actually, it's so funny because, uh, you know, we, everybody goes through this at some time or another, you know, it's like normal, okay? Um, and most people manage to go through it. Some people actually, you know, usually people will go and say, you know, I need to leave the community and everything, and then we drive them to Newport. Um, but I remember talking to somebody once who, um, he was telling us that when he was in his 20s, he was in a Zen community, and he was online, you know, on track to become a Zen priest. And then he just decided he didn't want to do it, and he felt so bad he, he couldn't go to his Zen master and say, you know, I've changed my mind. And he actually left in the middle of the night. Yeah. So... I don't know, maybe to the monastery was closer to town. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because if your bike's missing, Brian, somebody can go find it in Newport. <laughs> okay. You know, but, but you really have to learn to kind of Work with your own mind. It's it's not all, you know, bliss and happiness. It's it's tough working with your mind. Because whenever you're unhappy, you know, we have so much conditioning to blame the outside. Why am I unhappy? Because this person, because this setting, because of this situation. And you always have to come back to why am I unhappy? Yeah, the karma I created before is ripening. Yeah, and why am I unhappy? Because my mind is not a Dharma mind right now. My mind is full of attachment, it's full of anger, it's full of jealousy, it's full of laziness. Those minds do not bring me happiness. And so you have to sit there like, what do I do with this mind? Because your mind follows you wherever you go. Yeah. So you have to learn to work skillfully with your mind. It's, you know, this is part of the process. Okay, I think we are out of time. Um, but just some, some brief points on this. Um, and also as a monastic, you have to cultivate humility and modesty. You know, you can't go around kind of like in the West, here are all my good qualities and here's this and that. So you have to have confidence in yourself, but being boastful is not very becoming of a monastic. Okay? And you have to learn how to relate to lay people, how to be friendly, how to be kind, but how not to form sticky emotional relationships. Okay? And this can sometimes be challenging, you know? Sometimes lay people want you know, oh, that's my monastic. Yeah. They want to come just talk to you or, or, or whatever. And, you know, you have to kind of cool that energy. It's not healthy for you or healthy for them. Okay? 
and so how, how to act around like people that inspires faith. You know, even when you yourself are not feeling very happy. You you know? Do you think every time I go to give a teaching I'm in a good mood and feel like teaching? <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> Sometimes I don't feel well, sometimes I'm exhausted, sometimes I'm mentally tired. It doesn't matter how I feel, you know. If the lay people are counting on me for something, I do it. And what's very interesting is I always feel better afterwards. And then I have to go home and like sleep. But, you know, you, you learn to, to push yourself through certain times because you know there's a scheduled event and people are counting on you or you're doing puja and the community's there and you know and so you have you have to you learn to nudge yourself along along that and you also learn what your limits are and how to deal with your cranky mind and how to you know how much to nudge yourself and when you have to ease up and, you know, give yourself some baby food and a pat on the back and, you know, suck your thumb a little <laughs> You know. <laughs> so, I'm speaking in images, right? So you have to learn, really, how to deal with your own mind, you know. And when you're indulging in yourself... And you need to nudge yourself forward. And when you're pushing yourself, and you need to give yourself a chance to rest. You know? And most of us err at one extreme or the other. Okay. Or some of us err at one extreme at one, one day and the other extreme the next day. <laughs> okay. But you have to learn to work with all of this. So it's a commitment. And that's why I keep emphasizing the importance of a long-term motivation. Yeah, Because if you're really serious and you want to get out of cyclic existence and you want to be able to benefit sentient beings through leading them out of cyclic existence, if you're really serious about that, that gives you a lot of courage to hang, kind of hang in there when it gets difficult because you know that that you'll be able to go through the difficulties. You know that the difficulties are impermanent. But often when we're in the middle of difficulties, we're sure that they're going to last for all eternity. And we just want something to get out of that situation ASAP. But if you have a long-term motivation and a little bit of wisdom, then you'll realize, okay, my mind is acting up right now. But I'm learning the tools, and I have some tools to apply to my mind to work with the situation. There's other people in this community that, believe it or not, care for me, even though I'm pushing them away. They actually care for me, and I can go and ask for help, you know, from other community members. I can go talk to my teacher. Um, This feeling is not going to last forever. And anyway, I want to get out of samsara after all. It's like samsara, enough, enough. Even if I go do all those things my mind is telling me might be interesting to do, I know it's not going to make me happy in the long run. 
So let's just save myself a lot of suffering and not even try it. Yeah. I stay here and really work and ask for help. And the Sangha will help. And the teacher will help. If we're open. Okay. So I talked out about the hard part of it this time.